Welcome, everyone, to a special edition of Out of the Main, the Yacht Rock Podcast. Wait, the Soft Rock Podcast. Yes, the unscheduled uh, special episode. Yes, very special episode. It won't uh, be like a very special episode of the sitcoms of the 70s because nobody will cry. Um, <laughs> and we will actually. Those are never any good anyway. I know. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this kind of, I, wanna, I don't want to say fell into our laps, but it kind of uh, came out of order because of a break that you and I are taking for the month of January. So we were scheduled to be off this month. Uh, but this opportunity came our way. We said, well, we can't wait because this thing's just dropped and the people need to know about it. And some things just cannot wait. It's finally here. And I'm talking about the uh, the three-part story slash documentary all about soft rock and yacht rock. It's called Sometimes When We Touch, The Rain, The Ruin, and The Resurrection of Soft Rock, which we've discussed from our own perspective. I cannot wait to hear this one. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting to me is, you know, one of two people who created a whole podcast around the idea of going back you know, studying, celebrating, unearthing, like trying to analyze why this thing, A, was something so special. And when I say thing, I mean, whatever, soft rock, yacht rock, whatever you want to call it, why it went away and why it's coming back. So this is right up our alley. And we've made the distinction that we love yacht rock, but we also love the broader umbrella of soft rock. So this is right up our alley, as you say. Yep. So the documentary is called Sometimes When We Touch. And let's bring in, we have one of the executive producers and writer of a three-part documentary, which we're getting into today. Welcome, Chuck Thompson. Chuck, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm uh, excited to talk about soft rock and yacht rock and all of that. So appreciate having you guys having me on. Great to have you. The first thing I got to ask you, though, again, as I just mentioned, we came up with this idea about four years ago to create something to celebrate this sort of unheralded at the time unheralded era of music because there's so much to it. That was what motivated us. And we wanted to discover what new stuff was out there new being old and just never unearthed. Um, so we had those as our sort of priorities. What went into the making of this? And I mean, like, why this? Why now? What was the genesis of it? Well, the genesis exactly was I was working with uh, Gunpowder and Sky, which is a production company that put this together. And I was actually pitching them and talking to them about a show about sort of power pop of the late 70s, early 80s, and all these other kind of things. And, you know, I grew up as a kid kind of hating a lot of soft rock, you know, I mean, it's not music for nine, 10, 11, 12 year old kids, you know, and being pummeled with uh, air supply all day long. But I said to one of the guys I was working with, I said, you know, what we really should do is a story about soft rock. That stuff outsold this other stuff a <laughs> hundred times to one, right? Carpenters outsold Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix, but nobody ever talks about that. And then a kind of a light just went off. And, you know, like a lot of people, I think who had, has grown up with some music and, and maybe as a kid didn't like or appreciate the musicianship, the songwriting, the talent that went into a lot of this music. As an adult, I kind of look back and go, wait a minute, that was actually a pretty damn cool song that I was slagging off my sister for playing all the time, you know, that kind of thing. And I had a sister who was into a lot of this music. And so for me, it's definitely a lot more than a nostalgia. Nostalgia is the word that I hate applied to this music. I don't listen to this because it makes me remember when I was 12 or 14 or in high school or something. I listen to it because it's just really good music. And sometimes when we touch The honesty's too much And I have to close my eyes And hide 
so that's kind of how the idea got going. And then as I started to look into this, you know, I really realized that nobody has ever put a firm, hard definition on soft rock. You can ask a hundred people, what is soft rock? And you'll get 200 different answers. And um, so it really started with me trying to look at, you know, I was char- I was looking at about 500 different songs that seemed to sort of fit in most people's idea of what soft rock is. And I was literally charting, I made this whole flip, like what sorts of instruments are being used? What's the subject matter of the lyrics? What are the tempos, this, that, and the other thing. And so I started to try to find this, um, you know, things that were common to all these songs. And that ended up becoming this definition of soft rock. And then the whole project started from there. I sort of had an observation that, well, a little background on it. Tom and I have discussed from the yacht rock perspective. So we've talked about what is called proto yacht. So some of the stuff that led into the beginning of the yacht rock era. And this really applies also to the whole soft rock thing. And then we've done an episode about what happened in the mid eighties when it sort of died. And we looked at it from the perspective, I guess you could say of the musicians and the producers. We talked about the, uh, the start of it was when we saw the equipment was getting better. The mixing consoles were improving. We were getting more multi-tracks, you know, uh, higher fidelity, faster tape speeds, all these fidelity things, which led to the pristine recordings that we know from soft rock. And then as you touch on in the later years, the advent of these digital synthesizers and drum machines and other things that came along that sort of killed off that sound. That was always our perspective, which, as I said, is from the musician side. Your focus on this mostly is from the cultural, societal things that led to people's interest in this. You're almost looking at it from the consumer side. So I kind of wanted to set that up and sort of get your response to that, how it ended up being more about that side, the cultural. Well, if look. I could just disagree with you a tiny bit, I mean, I definitely agree with you that, I mean, to me, the big shift musically was the advent of drum machines. Which really come along like 1980, 79, 80, 81, but, but, but become super popular in, you know, 82, 83, 84, you know, Roland, 808 drum machine, the Lindra. So that is in the, in the show. And I do think, um, John, that's, just as important as the cultural side. But in fact, it's tied into it, right? Because technology at this point, digital technology drives our culture, right? And this was really when it it started to change in that direction. But it is true too, um, to answer your question that, you know, if you, if you just look at the inauguration speeches of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan four years later and compare those, the tone and the tenor and the message of what you know, our elected leader of this country was saying to us was really different. And Jimmy Carter in, you know, 76, 77 is really kind of this warm, fuzzy guy in his cardigan sweaters. And he says, let's, his, his whole thing was to get, let's learn together, let's laugh together, let's pray together. I mean, he was really kind of trying to get appeal to people's emotions and feelings after this divisiveness of the 1960s and early 70s, Vietnam, civil rights, all this stuff. And for the most part, I think the country bought into that. Obviously, not entirely. There's always going to be political rancor. But, you know, I feel like there was this whole emphasis on love, right, which is what a lot of soft rock songs, for the most part, were about. When Reagan comes in, there's this shift to what I would say power, 
um, Reagan was appealing to people who had felt emasculated and weakened. And part of it was his music, right? I mean, he didn't, he didn't specifically reference, you know, I'd really love to see you tonight or uh, do you want to make love? But I think he was, you know, the music kind of played into that sort of thing. And so there was this shift in popular culture and you could see it in the movies, whether it's, you know, the rise of, you know, the Rambo and, and uh, Terminator type of icons, you know, and, and we have a real quick, a quick Alan Alda flashes by, you know, he's uh, the, the people's most sensitive and sexy man of the seventies was nowhere to be seen by the time uh, Don Johnson and Miami Vice, uh, you know, become the most popular thing on television. And the music definitely tracks with that, right? And so when you get those drum machines, right, you stop you stop getting a, a drum track that's maybe little brushes, and it's like goom, those gated snare drums, and it's just you know, it sounds like you know the the um um one of the guys from Air Supply says it sounds like an elephant's playing the snare drum, and I just hate it. That's one of my favorite uh, my favorite lines <laughs> yeah. from the uh, Graham Russell from Air Supply says that's one of my favorite lines from the show because it I felt the same way. I hated those gated snares and those uh, drum machine drums that just were in every song in the 1980s. I had to laugh. Um, I don't know if this was intentional or not, or something that you, maybe you planted a seed with the director, but there's the scene where you uh, cut to a, a, like it's a montage of people pushing buttons on the drum machines and on the MIDI triggers. <laughs> they just look like fools, you know, they're in the studio <laughs> and they're hunched over these little buttons, you know, and you're thinking <laughs> those are rock stars. But anyways, I wanted to, uh, as John mentioned there, you tell the story in three parts, the rain, the ruin, the resurrection. And because of something you said uh, just a minute ago, Chuck, I wanted to jump ahead to resurrection direction, which is kind of part of what we do here. And um, as you said something, it dawned on me. Um, you said you grew up not liking this music necessarily. It was schmaltzy. Um, but here we are now in the year 2022, 2023. And we're like, man, those are good songs. Um, coupled with something David Pack said in the doc, which is everything about soft rock was hard. And I love that line. So mm -hmm. the two things that stick out to me, I want to get your perspective on it, um, Chuck, is one is you don't miss it until it's gone. And I spent my entire 90s chasing a sound that wasn't specifically melody driven, right? It wasn't the idea wasn't to write the perfect hook. It was to kind of write the perfect vibe. Uh, and that's something that really was prevalent in the love songs. This is just irresistible hook. That's kind of gone. I don't think that's coming back necessarily. And then two is the musicianship to which David Pack was referring. So what, in addition to that or separate from that, or you can tell me I'm wrong, what do you see is the resurrection side? What's driving that? Well, a number of factors are driving it. And one is uh, elucidated by um, the needle drop critic, Anthony Fantano, who's you know one of the most influential music critics on, on the internet right now on YouTube. And he says, you know, his audience of, of younger listeners is not coming to this music with all the baggage that was attached to it in the 70s and 80s. They don't know they're supposed to hate it. They don't know that it was schmaltzy <laughs> or compared to war pigs or something uh from the 70s that it's you know somehow betraying the spirit of rock and roll which is how a lot of soft rock was seen in the in the 70s they're just sort of listening to it on its own merits and they're able to reassess it without that and and it's like wow this is dynamite music the other thing clearly is i mean hip-hop artists have been 
a very big part of the resurrection of this music. Now, obviously, hip hop artists sample from all types of music and sounds, not exclusively soft rock and yacht rock, but they've really built some huge hits by sampling uh, soft rock music and by taking samples that are quite identifiable you know obviously the early uh one that we look at is is regulate which um is in the 90s a sample mike mcdonald but even something like big sean and kanye's uh, all your fault which samples ambrosia um it's it's quite obvious they, they gave him 50 percent royalty on that because it's his sample david pax so the hip-hop community is definitely bringing that back as well pop um, um television and movies and I think, you know, they love to, to, to create a 70s or 80s vibe. They love to cherry pick the best of the 70s and 80s. And they put those songs in their soundtracks and get younger audiences interested in them. Now, they've got that benefit. If you grew up in the 70s, 80s, um, you didn't just get to hear the top. It was sort of like, you know, why everybody hates disco. There were some great disco songs. But if you were living through it, there was a lot of horrible, horrible, horrible disco songs that were just, just garbage. And there were a lot of pretty bad soft rock songs. You know, we're not subjected to those uh, in the 2000s. So it helps that, that it, everything's kind of a best of. But I, I wouldn't mind making one other point about um, this show that you kind of alluded to, which is the one thing, there's some really unique aspects about this music and about the artists involved in it. And I think what separates soft rock, if not yacht rock artists, from all other musicians and all of the music documentaries you've ever seen. Every music documentary has this kind of downfall and it's usually about drugs, drug addiction, alcohol, um, divorces, big fights in the band, creative differences, right? It's the exact same goddamn story every time. These soft rock musicians at their nadir dealt with something that no other musicians ever dealt with. And that is widespread public and professional ridicule even while they were at the top of the charts. They were ridiculed, right? Uh, and nobody had to deal with that. And, and he's not a soft rock artist, but you asked earlier what started this. I did. I interviewed Rick Springfield a few years ago. Um, and he told me, he had a line just in the middle of a two hour conversation. He said, I have experienced being at the top of the world professionally and yet disrespected at the same time. So it's a weird dichotomy. He's like, I'm the most popular guy on the planet for this six month period and I'm making a ton of money and everybody loves me and I'm on every magazine cover and yet everybody hates me at the same time. It's a really weird dichotomy. So there's this um, populist element to this music that's always appealed to me as well. Why, why is something so popular always so shit upon by critics and, and even audiences? So um, that's something that this documentary deals with with these figures that I've never seen in another music documentary. Mm, wow. Yeah, because I've heard Steve Lukather talk about that, how underappreciated he was, yet he was on, you know, 25 of the top 40 songs at one time. And Can I give you a piece of quick since you brought up Lukather? Yeah, Unfortunately, yeah. didn't yeah. make it in the show. Uh, we, we did a great interview with uh, John Ford Coley of England and John Ford Coley. And they were presented with their first hit, the song, I really, I really love to see you tonight. And they, at first they kind of didn't want to record it. They thought it was a song that sounded too feminine, sounded like a, a female singer should do it. But then they, they cut a demo anyway. And um, Steve Picaro and David Page of Toto are on the demo that sold Really Love to See You Tonight. Wow. Did not know that. Did you know that, John? I had no idea. No way. Wow. I thought you guys would be nerdy enough to appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. But not nerdy enough to know it, I guess. So, right. Uh, but my, my question was going to be um, – I, maybe this is more of a question of a, of 
the director kind of thing, but I'd like to get your perspective on this. I sort of picture this process when I'm watching this, I'm picturing like the big whiteboard, almost like in a detective's office where they've got the pictures and then all the strings connecting everything. I, I see this, like these hubs of activity and then all these other things that connect to it. Because the thing that really kept me interested was the pacing of this thing where you would fly through different artists and quick clips of songs and get this great sort of uh, broad stroke look at something. And then you would stop and focus on one particular maybe hub or one particular thing like you did with Captain and Tennille or Ray Parker Jr., Rupert Holmes. And I I thought that the pacing of that made it where it didn't feel long and it didn't feel short. It just, it was beautiful. Well, thank you for saying that. I agree with you. And that, that credit goes to our director, Lauren Lazen, who has, she's a veteran. She's done music docs. She's done docs on a lot of things. And she really knows how to keep the ball rolling and get into things in a kind of a deep way without ever really stopping the pace. I mean, the good thing to me about this show and why I think Lauren was perfect director for it was, you know, if you don't like a particular song or particular artist, it's sort of like, you know, you don't like the weather now, wait five minutes. It's going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, it it, stay, it keeps moving. And yet she's really good at pacing that. So it's like, okay, let's take a breather. Let's sit here on four or five minutes and learn some things about Captain and Tennille or Rupert Holmes or Ray Parker Jr. That is going to blow your yeah. mind. I, to that point, the nuance to it, there's like these montages where so much is implied, but not said. So you'll be watching, I don't know, Karen Carpenter sing a song and then it'll cut to Van Halen, like Eddie Van Halen doing his, you know, version of the Chuck Berry walk or whatever. And you're like, you don't say what we're supposed to draw as a conclusion, but you get it right. You're like, this isn't going to last because look what's coming. And I love that about it. But you then tell that story in the longer story. arc. You know, again, thank you. And you guys are, guys are probably the perfect audience for that because I personally hate beating people over the head with points and mm-hmm. and part of that, that's the motivation for doing it that way. Just sort of here, here's the facts. Here's just look at it. See, you know, there's there's two two things in the show that we don't really specifically point out, but there's that clip of Solid Gold and the Solid Gold dancers doing a spandex clad interpretive dance of "I Keep Forgetting" by Michael McDonald, right? And right. you don't even have to say anything. It's just like, Jesus Christ, this is it's not long for this world, right? <laughs> and the other one, in a, a guy on a song, Key Largo by Bertie Higgins, that I really wanted to spend some time on the show. We we did some part, and you know, some things just wind up on the cutting room floor, and it's really unfortunate. But we do pan by the Bertie Higgins um, album cover as we're setting up Pina Colada song and Rupert Holmes, and just these kind of songs that became, you know, the term of time earworms that people loved and yet it drove them crazy at the same time. And, and kind of, you know, those artists got a lot of negative feedback, you know, for being so popular. And Key Largo was one of those songs too. We we weren't able to really delve into that. If there's a, um, if there's a second version of this documentary, I'll, I'll definitely call it Bertie Higgins. It's funny that you mentioned that it sort of has this built-in, sort of baked-into-the-cake downfall that is ultimately going to come. And that was an aspect of this uh, era of music that, as we've been studying it, again, going back to maybe we study it almost too technically, because I don't think about those things. And the way you illustrate what you just mentioned, some of the songs are such earworms that eventually they drive you crazy or that it was being presented in a way that wasn't going to last. It, 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 
you you show some of the, like the variety shows, like the Captain and Tennille and Sonny and Cher, and it had that shtick that was almost you knew. Maybe when you were in it, you didn't know. But when we look back at it now, you could just see that that was a time bomb that was going to go off eventually. I feel like I was in a pretty, you know, I I actually really love the second episode of this. I think it'll probably be the least popular of the three episodes. But I like it because I lived it, man. And I feel like I'm in a reasonably good spot to tell that story because, you know, I... Matt Pinfield has a quote, the MTV, former MTV VJ, and he's been all on radio. He's like, you know, this music was aimed at somebody older than me, right? And when you're 10 or 11 or 12, man, you you do not need to hear Muskrat Love, you know, uh, 30 times a week on your local AM station, which I did. And it does make you start really hating this and looking for reasons to hate it and those variety shows they drove me bananas when i was a kid my sister was really into donnie and marie and um you know three channels and four kids fighting over tv everybody gets their show i got monday night football and she got donnie and marie and we'd all watch it because it's like damn thing we had and i'd sit there and just you know scratch my eyeballs out going jesus there must be something better out there the rubber band man thing (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned uh you mentioned Matt Pinfield, which was kind of um, a note I had in terms of the eclectic lineup of cutaway interviews. So, of course, we get our buddies like David Pack and uh, Peter Beckett. Peter Beckett. Yeah. Well, you can't wipe the smile off that guy's face nowadays, uh, <laughs> which is infectious. But you've got guys like oh, you met, met, mentioned Matt Pinfield, uh, John Andrzejczyk. I don't know if I'm saying it, but he. I love Five for Fighting. Um, the guy from Rooney. I shouldn't. I should, Hey, so Drew Barrymore out of the blue, Tori. So it's like all over the map. What was the approach there to getting such a wide variety of not some of them aren't even musicians like Drew Barrymore? What was that approach and how did that, that all come together? Well, again, to me, this is a populist music. This was music that touched every single person in the culture for better or worse, whether you liked it or loved it, man, you were living this music. And um, so I didn't want to just focus on musicians because I've interviewed a lot of musicians and most of them can talk to you all day about their music, but they're not like uh, you and I, they're not these top 40 junkies that know everything about what everybody else was doing. By the way, two refreshing, three refreshing people who were really in the musician category who can sit there and talk to you about anything from the hot 100 from 1971, um, Nancy Wilson from heart, Rupert Holmes and Cheryl Crow. They were really good, just just rap about music people. Um, And also because I felt like this music influenced so many other types of music. You know, we got Daryl McDaniel from uh, Run DMC on there and Big Boy from Outkast. They were listening to this stuff, man. It's obvious in their music. So again, I felt that there was this, this this is a populist story. And it's also a feel-good story. And I knew people were going to want to say, hey, man, I I really dug this and I haven't had a chance to say so ever publicly, you know. And I'm glad you guys like Rooney. Boy, he was a great interview. He had so much to say. How did he 
get identified specifically? Because I would think most people would find him way under the radar and loosely connected, if at all, to like soft rock. Well, he's he's friends with David Pack. And when we started talking to David Pack, he just started talking about um, Robert and how into this music he is and how he's really, even though he's known for Rooney, and Rooney did kind of channel some kind of 70s, 80s vibe to him in some really cool ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, I was just looking for people – if I'd known you guys, I would have called you guys. You know, I would have said, <laughs> I want to talk to people who like talking about this stuff as much as I do. And 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 David pointed us to Robert Schwartzman. And and we went into Robert's um, studio to shoot some things. And he was just really cool, really nice guy and super knowledgeable and just very positive. He wore an air supply t-shirt to his uh, to his interview. Yeah. And he had so much cool. I could tell, you know what? I went into that interview with him thinking, Oh, we'll get one or two sound bites from this guy. And as I'm doing the interview, as a lot of these interviews were, it was like, oh my God, we could do a whole document. We should just turn a half hour over to this guy. He's got so much to say, you know. And so then it becomes a problem of, and it's a it's a good problem, but it's still a problem. We've got way too much good stuff here. <laughs> what are we gonna do? Well, and I similar with uh, John from uh, Five for Fighting, because um, again, that's somebody who I love, and I know he's had a lot of commercial success, but somewhat under the radar. After listening to his take on this genre of music, I went back and listened to like some of his hits in Superman and 100 Years. Man, he writes a good melody. Everything that they did back then, he's not afraid to play light and soft. Yeah, and he says he didn't want to be that guy. He wanted to be Jimmy Page or something. I'm sure you guys had this conversation a lot, but the way we got to John Androzic was, was part of a larger conversation with the director and other executive producers and our editors of who belongs in this thing and who doesn't. And you get to a guy like John Androzic and five for fighting. And some people will make a very strong case. Oh, he's soft rock. And then some people will say, no, no, he's not really soft rock. He's more of this ballad here. Yeah. He does fit this definition. We set up, he is, you know, kind of keyboard based, piano based. He does write a lot of love songs, not exclusively, but you know, he, and we put that question to John himself, and he said, I can't remember if that clip made it in the show or not. He says, I don't know if I'm a soft rock artist. Yeah. I would not consider, personally, I would not consider him a soft rock artist. But there were people that worked on the show that said, yeah, I think he is. So, you know, there's that gray area of so many artists. And we thought, well, whether he is or isn't, he's a damn great songwriter, and he just seems like a good dude. Let's see if he wants to talk about this with us. And he did, and he was fantastic, as you saw. Well, that's about 50% of what we do in the Yacht Rock Circle is argue what goes in what genre and what doesn't. But, you know, I one thing, another thing I learned from this, I had no idea how uh, prolific Dan Hill was and that, that he still is working quite a bit. Rupert Holmes also. But how did you then settle on Sometimes When We Touch as the title and then D- Dan Hill as sort of a minor focus on this? Well, thing? I was batting around titles. By the way, I never thought this title was going to sell through. I can't believe it did. And it's a really long subtitle. I mean, we're like on social media. Keep it to, you know, 12 characters, bro. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I I come up with a bunch of titles of my own. I don't normally like cribbing titles from pre-existing things, but that title and Do You Want to Make Love by Peter McCann both kind of popped in my head as these are two songs that those titles, there's so many layers to them. They were hugely popular songs. They're very explicit in their revealing of naked male emotion and vulnerability to the point that some people loved them, so they became huge hits, and some people just cringed at them, right? I mean, there is a an aspect to sometimes when we touch that's a little, you know, it nauseates people, you know? And, and so I thought that that title was so perfect and such a great summation of 
it's a love song. It's a song about, particularly in that context, male emotional vulnerability, which was quite a popular thing to expose in this music early on, less so later. Um, and it just, I don't know, there's a, there's a little bit of humor behind it too, to me, you know, when, as soon as I said it there, everybody's like, Oh God, that's perfect. Now you'll never do it. <laughs> well, and then I thought, well, shit, now we got to ask Dan Hill if it's okay. And I, I'd never met Dan Hill. I'd never interviewed him. And I thought, well, let's just see what kind of guy he is. Does he roll with his punch? Does he kind of resent, you know, the reputation that that song has acquired or not? So we got a hold of him and, Man, that guy gave one of the greatest interviews I've ever done in my life. He was just all aces, five stars. And yeah, sure, he know he knows exactly what sometimes when we touch means to everybody, to the people who love it and still think it's one of the greatest love songs ever written, and people who tell you they would, you know, rather drink chlorine and vomit for a week than listen to it again. He understands all of that. He doesn't hide from it, and he's really cool with it. He's really candid with it. Um, and you're right. He's done a lot more. He's written a lot of songs for a lot of people. He's an incredible songwriter. I run a bunch of Juno Awards up in Canada. He's got a great backstory as well. Growing up as a biracial kid in 60s Canada, which, um, you know, he talked to us a little bit about in the interview that we didn't end up including. Uh, but I mean, he had a hell of a backstory himself. Yeah. And I would say too, the other enjoyment I got out of this, you called us a nerd. I think that's a compliment, but so yeah. you feel like John, we know a lot of the, like the high level fun facts, but we did a whole thing on the Christopher cross album. We actually had his drummer on to go through it track by track. Um, I knew that it won best album, best song, best record, best new artist in the Grammys. I did not know that that record held for 40 years until Billie Eilish came along. So that's yeah. fun fact number one. John, did you know this fun fact? Hmm. You do now if you didn't then. Okay. Firefall's debut album went gold faster than any album in the history of the Atlantic Records. In, faster than Ray Charles, yeah. Aretha Franklin, and Led Zeppelin. You could have given me a hundred guesses. I couldn't have come up with Firefall for that. And I'm a huge Firefall fan. That first record is really a great record. You know, that's the thing we couldn't get. We we get into it visually a few times with some of the best soft rock albums. You know, people think of these as singles. Um, one of my favorite soft rock albums is Stephen Bishop, Careless, um, which had the hits on and on mm. and Save It for a Rainy Day, which um Eric Clapton and Chaka Khan appear on. You guys probably are aware of that. Um, but I mean, he came out of the box as this, you know, he was going to be the next, and, and on and on was a huge song. And he, you know, he did the other songs that did great. Um, but yeah, anyway, I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah, Firefall. Yeah. Confetti. Terrific, terrific band, uh, terrific songwriters. This is a terrific, really terrific documentary. We should remind people it's streaming now on Paramount Plus. John, you already were a Paramount Plus subscriber. Yep. I was not, so I had to subscribe. And just a quick plug for our friends who are willing to support something like this. It's well worth the money. I was surprised at just how how low the subscription rate was and how big the catalog is. So it's worth your time at least to get this. And then once you're there, you'll get hooked. So there's lots more. Oh yeah. yeah there's a ton of stuff on that channel. Um, you know, it's funny when you're, when you're looking at, Oh, I'm not going to spend five bucks to sign up for this. It's like, shit, you'd spend 20 bucks to go to a movie. You spend 40 bucks to go to a movie and get a platform. And then you now, sit yeah. there and go, do I right. want to watch this movie for three 99? It's really strange. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 
Sometimes I wonder if a song is worth buying anymore for a do- what is it one twenty nine yeah. on iTunes. Yeah, that's so ridiculous. But I do. I, I do too, man. I do too, and I think it's important to do so. John, I don't know what else you wanted to ask. I did want to ask real quick about the whole yacht rock. Uh, it's a Russian T doll set, right? So you get to the concept of yacht rock. I'm wondering how you thought about approaching that going in, and if it changed at all after interviewing Dave Lyons and Hollywood Steve, you know, two of the creators of yacht rock. I went into it saying firmly, Yacht Rock is not soft rock. I must have said that a thousand times in the first two months of this production. I said, they're two separate things. Get it through your goddamn skull. But I've kind of relented on that a little bit because everybody says, no, no, they're not. You know, if you ask anybody under the age of 30, they're going to tell you they're the same thing or they've never even heard of soft rock. So it wasn't intended to do that, as David and Steve said in our interview, and they were also one of the best interviews of the whole, I mean, everybody's a great interview, but they're really good. Um, but I did start to gradually see how these two, you know, that sort of Venn diagram overlaps and essentially almost becomes one at some point. I would still say that Yacht Rock is a subset of soft rock. And, you know, it's funny, I don't know if you guys, you know, I do listen to, I think a lot of people consume Yacht Rock through the Sirius radio channel, Yacht Rock. And I think they... To me, I don't know what you guys think about this. Watch it. I've I've listened or watched their um, playlist expand exponentially over the last three or four years. I think they thought, well, we'll do this Yacht Rock channel. It's going to be one of our little things we do for three months, and then it goes away. We've got 150 songs we're going to rotate. But now that it's really popular, I'm like, oh, Christ, we can't do the same 150 songs every day. So, I mean, they're starting to play old America and Carole King and James Taylor. I mean... I think they've done it simply because they have to, they just need more format, but it's not really Yacht Rock anymore. Yacht Rock channel is now a soft rock uh, channel, hundred percent. Fully agreed. Fully agree. Yeah. But you know what? That's one thing that this documentary opened my eyes to, which was, so I used to be just a, I like soft rock. I, you know, I call it Yacht Rock. I don't know what Yacht Rock is. Obviously, as we do this podcast, we learn more about what technically Yacht Rock is. And then eventually, John, over time, I like uh, existing in this binary world where it's like, am I allowed to like this if it's not certified? Right. It's not Yacht Rock. (laughs) And what this, this documentary did for me is it reopened my sort of universe into it's all good stuff, right? Whether it's, the R&B side of Yacht Rock or it's Firefall and the Eagles, which unfortunately came up only a little bit in this, but um, th- that's, I've kind of this whole new approach. And so I wanted to thank the the makers of uh, sometimes when we touch for, for refocusing on just the quality of music. Well, I appreciate that. Um, Eagles are a whole nother category argument, um, legal, moral, spiritual, and otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> another yeah. time. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's a quote in the in the show from Daryl McDaniel from Run DMC who says, "Just stop labeling it. It's just good effing music, you know." Or something. And I, you know, by the way, that's how every musician responds to these questions. I did. You talked about the breadth of people we wanted to talk to, critics and people like Drew Barrymore and just fans, because they're really going to engage in this discussion and this argument, which I love and I can tell you guys love. But most musicians, they'll just say. Hey man, don't I don't know. It's just good music. I'll just play what I found. Don't put it in a box. It could. I had elements of funk. I listen to jazz. I listen to easy listening. I love the Carpenters. You know, just don't worry about it. That's what most musicians will say. But we had to talk to other people so we could have this fun discussion. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I said that's no fun. If we're not arguing, we're not having any fun. Well, here's the thing: most musicians are really focused on their own, on their own thing. 
Yes. Right. They're not as good at some of That's them. Are, as I mentioned a few earlier, you know, who else was great. Oh, Richard Marks. What a guy. I love, and I got to say another guy that, you know, as I was growing up, I found his music a little bit too soft or whatever. It went before. What a, that dude is so cool. He gave, he was really fun. I'm so glad he's in the, in the show. And he explains kind of the Fender Rhodes and his explanation of what the Fender Rhodes is, is such a good layperson's explanation of that keyboard. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, the like somebody took a piano and combined it with vibes, and he said, "There you go. You got your Rhodes piano." And that's pretty much it. I wrote little yeah. sections trying to explain why the Rhodes was a great instrument, why it was important, this or that, and they were all technical and wonky and geeky and stupid. And that guy in that one <laughs> quote, I was like, "Yes!" In eight seconds, he there did what I was trying. Spent yeah. a month failing to do well that's he's a songwriter so that is another guy though that's like uh, rick springfield like the on uh, steroids where the guy's got all the talent in the world he's sold millions and millions of records uh, he's hopefully rich as can be but everyone hates him because he's you know soft and pretty and pretty yeah just like me. i have the same <laughs> issues you do you do and then of course <laughs> the, on, the only issue i had with having uh, pat monahan from train on is it always takes me 10 seconds to figure out is that richard Barnes or is that pat monahan <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Monahan also really knowledgeable, great guy. Let's leave it uh, where the great prophet from Run DMC left us, which is stop labeling it, just love it. Yeah, and thank you to uh, Chuck from. Uh, give us the name of the production company again, and then we'll, uh, it's Gunpowder and Sky, right? Gunpowder and Sky produced it. Paramount Plus is uh, airing it, and it's their production. And um, yeah, the shows sometimes when we touch the rain. Ruin and Resurrection of Soft Rock. And Lauren Lazen directed it. And uh, David Gale was uh, also a great executive producer on it. A-plus review from me. Yep. Same here. Oh, thank you. That's great to hear. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Chuck. Yes, yeah, send that along to everyone and uh, thank them again for uh, putting a light on the topic that we hold near and dear. Okay. Thanks. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, you guys. Well, that was an interesting timed release uh, to bring us out of semi-hiatus retirement and to do a very special bonus episode. <laughs> Is it like um, like Gronkowski or someone coming out of retirement just for the playoffs or the stretch run? Yeah, that's about right. That's about right. <laughs> but I didn't want to, nor did they want us to wait forever until uh, we released this. And it, the timing was now. And I'm seeing some chatter about this on Facebook and the various groups. So might as well hit it while it's hot. Yeah, lots of people are talking about it. So we don't want to be laughing ones to the party, right? True. I mean, true. often we're the first to leave, but <laughs> often I'm not even invited. Oh yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. But we invited ourselves to this party. So, could you believe though that I think there's probably more examples of it? But when he points out that the Carpenters sold more records than Zeppelin, Hendrix, I forget who they were. He named like four huge bands, and. They sold more records than those bands combined. Yeah, that was an interesting factoid. Yep. Wow. They said something in there, and um, I think it was in part three. They called it the most fantastic resurgence in music history. Hmm. I meant to ask: Is there data for that? Is that is that just you know sort of uh, opining or you know talking you know excited about your own thing, or is there actual sales data that would indicate that? That's an interesting question because when I was in high school in the eighties. Uh, like the Animal House soundtrack, which was sort of hard, even though it was recorded, it was, it was music from like the 60s. Right. And um, uh, Big Chill soundtrack. Those were like the big things for us in like early high school years. So that was a resurgence, but maybe not as fantastic. Yeah, that's kind of what 
been probably my uh, comparison would have been when the Motown thing started to happen a lot again back in the 80s. And it was mostly off of Big Chill soundtrack. But uh, I also had the thought that we, we, we talk about how you and I have different perspectives on this era of music be, strictly because of our age and where we kind of fall in that. And so my formative years would have been during the reign of soft rock and your formative years were really during the ruin of soft rock. So that even further explains why we have a different viewpoint on things. And it goes back to even why we talk about uh, when I say that I don't want to feel the way grunge makes you feel. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and you still like that. Like we had the, the we talked, we've talked about Bill LeBounty as one. And um, so, it, you know, there was a quote in there that says about soft rock, it just makes you feel a certain way. And that's why people still want to hear it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And uh, that age difference, by the way, I was going to, that comes, keeps coming up in, um, like you said, the perspective you and I each have, but I am fortunate that I had older brothers in the house that I was still getting all the stuff through osmosis. And some of my friends, my age, who are the oldest in their family don't have that same appreciation for soft rock, yacht rock, any of the stuff in the seventies. So that's interesting as well. Hmm. And another thing I had never thought of, because you've brought it up about how uh, your daughter loves some of this stuff and you've made the point that, uh, you know, she doesn't necessarily have all the baggage that was connected to it. But it's also true, as Chuck pointed out, that what they're hearing today through pop culture, whether it's movies, commercials or whatever, are the more long lasting songs, the iconic songs, the better songs. They aren't hearing the whole swath of it that we grew up with so he pointed out that disco had a lot of horrible disco songs whereas you might hear a popular disco song today and say well well, was disco really that bad but you know we had to live through disco duck and things like that (laughs) at the same time so they don't have to hear that stuff today true true um in another, just you just triggered another thought, is that my daughter does not have the built-in nostalgia factor to be pre-wired to like some of the stuff that you and I like, partially because of the nostalgia. But what's interesting about soft rock or light rock or yacht rock is that she will attach to a song emotionally now to a time from her own past. And she might like hear just the two of us and say, oh, this reminds us of when we go to Florida, which right. is only five. So now that song does have some emotional attachment to her. And I wonder, going back to the thought of you know yacht rock or light rock just makes you feel a certain way, if it has that ability to connect with you emotionally and connect you into a specific time period or a memory or whatever it might be. Well, there's no question that as a genre, it was a very emotional genre, and they they really dive well into that. And I wrote down a couple of quotes, and one of them was, I don't remember who said this because uh, everything was kind of coming at me pretty fast, but emotion is timeless. And they were (laughs) making the point that that's why that music can still resonate today. It's not just going to be a nostalgia fad that has its resurgence and then goes away. So that was quote number one. And then... This is the one that got me. I think it's the last line of the whole thing. It was right at the end. Very well, maybe the very last words. And it comes from Skunk Baxter. And he says, talking about soft rock, it is the greatest source of connections between human beings. And until something else comes along, that's it. Mm, Love it. Yeah. Well, that kind of gets to what I was just describing with my younger, you know, my daughter, right? So Mm -hmm. something about the connections. Hmm. All right. Well, the last observation I had, uh, which might be a good segue into our lightning round, unless you have anything else, was that I I had this epiphany as I was done with the 
the documentary and I pull up Spotify the next morning and my for you are two playlists. One's soft rock. Wow. Right. I should have turned my mic off. The other one is something called easy and free and they're both <laughs> soft rock. You know, right. I'm like, I'm in the mood for, you know, to broaden my horizons, if you will. So I'm listening to soft rock and then now easy and free. And I have this, like I said, epiphany or this liberation where it's like, I've been living, as I mentioned during the podcast in this yeah. sort of binary world, like, is it this or is it that? And I've attached myself to that to the point where I'm taking songs that I like out of a certain playlist that is my favorite playlist. I'm like, what am I doing? Right. So I say all that as a way to segue into the lightning round, because for an episode that focuses on soft rock, I don't find it appropriate to ask you if something floats your boat or not, because who cares for this particular episode? Fair enough. Yeah. And that we've been playing around with the idea and we've even done it of broadening the show beyond Yacht Rock. We, because of our pure love for the stuff that lives outside of Yacht Rock. We love this era of music and the way this music is made, but we don't feel, we feel that we're kind of shortchanging ourselves by trying to stay purely within the authentic guidelines of what Yacht Rock is. We recognize what those are. I'm done arguing about them, <laughs> which I did in the past, but I'm ready to say, yeah, I love that, but we're going to talk about all of this. So this show kind of gives us that sort of launching point, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. So right. that sound you are hearing, by the way, is the sound of thousands of uh, pearls being clutched all across the country <laughs> in the world. The other sound you hear is the sound of lightning striking. Hit it. Oh, yeah. All right. Ah, never, never grows old. All right. You say you wanted to uh, go first on this since uh, we're not doing the traditional no, I'm not going to ask if this on. floats your boat, but okay. it's, uh, it's, it's a discovery I made as I'm listening to the soft rock playlist on um, on Spotify. So I come across this song by artist Eric Kerman, who mm-hmm. kind of fits in this category. I remember asking you years ago if you felt like Eric Kerman was in any way related to Yacht Rock. At the time, you said, yeah, kind of. Oh, dang. Uh, I was going to say, <laughs> I hope I said no. No, you didn't. So what's interesting, but it is a, it's a soft rock artist, right, who we probably both love. So I'm coming across a song, and I hear... Baby, I need your lovin', the cover of the Four Tops tune. Wow, I don't think I know that. I if I do, I, I forgot it. Yeah. I never knew it existed. So it's something that is found at sea. If yeah. You know. Oh. Now, little interesting about this song. So it's from the 1978 Change of Heart album, okay. which does have a Change of Heart song on it. The title track is on the Yatsky scale at 70.75, which is huge. Ooh. So I do a little more digging. And on that song that you just heard, here's the personnel. Okay. Jay Winding, acoustic piano. David Page, electric piano. Danny Korchmar, guitars. Mike Picaro on bass, Jeff Picaro on drums, Paulino DaCosta on percussion, and then the female vocalists are Valerie Carter, Brenda <laughs> Russell, and Samantha Song Sang. Song Samantha. Sang, she yes. Song Past Song Sung Blue. Song yeah. yeah. Wow. Is that's that- all I got. That's my analysis. Wow. Okay. Well, last little bit of uh, okay. trivia. It's not even trivia. The rest of the personnel include Burton Cummins on this album, by the way, um, the Change Your Heart album, Leland Sklar on bass, Russ Kunkel on drums, 
Um, and then one James Newton Howard on synth. Yeah. That's a pretty Yachty album. It really and is. A Yachty song. So it wow. doesn't matter. If it, it does. It's not really Yachty, but it's, again, exemplary of why we love this era of music so much. It's so good. Excellent. Well, my uh, first thing in this lightning round, I, I decided since we didn't know what we were going to do without the float your boat thing, we hadn't figured that out yet. I thought, well, what would be the song that if somebody asked me to give them an example of what would be a defining song of soft rock? I kind of mm. thought... I didn't spend a lot of time with it. It's like, what was the first one to pop to mind? And it may be obvious, but to me, the essence of soft rock is all right here in England and John Ford Coley's I'd Really Love to See You Tonight. I'm not talking about moving in, and I don't want to change your life. But there's a warm wind blowing the stars around, and I'd really love to see you tonight. I think that's uh, that sums it up. I think it, it does as well. And what's interesting is uh, I don't know how yachty that. So I know it's not uh, certified. No. It's no. it's under fifty. But I always thought of that as yacht rock. Going back to our earlier point, but it's really just soft rock. Yeah, I think it's just a little bit below forty. But uh, isn't that the one that uh, Chuck said though that? Now that now I'm remembering, didn't he say that was the one that the original demo had Jeff Percaro and Steve Percaro on it? Yes, but the irony was is uh, John Ford Coley didn't want to sing it. He thought it should have been a female vocalist. Yeah, but when he wasn't de- ready to be all uh, soft and cuddly with his feelings yet. Little yet. did he know what the future was to hold. <laughs> right. All right. That's a good one. Yeah, so that's your analog to uh, JoJo, right? Because you think JoJo's Correct. the Yacht Rock pinnacle. All right, cool. All right. Gotcha. What do you got for, uh, we are doing Buried Treasures. We are we doing Buried Treasures. This is uh, from 1984. Uh, it's probably not a Yachty song, but it's got a lot of Yachty elements. So this, I kind of hearken this or liken this to Shaka Khan's Through the Fire, which I know is certified, but this would be a little more ballady version of it. But it came up in one of my lists and, uh, I remember how much I loved this song, played it in a band I was in back in the day. Uh, and then I go to find out it was written by Lionel Richie. And produced by Lionel Richie, along with James Anthony Carmichael, who had been the Commodores producer. Knowing all of that, you can really hear a lot of Commodores influence in this. And this was uh, Diana Ross's big hit from 1984, the Swept Away album. And this is Missing You. Wow, that's a great pick for two reasons. One is, I don't know how I forgot I forgot that one, but it's been out of mind for years now. And then it does get yachty as the song goes along. It gets yachtier and yachtier and yachtier. Yeah, kind of like those Quincy Jones ballads with James Ingram where you have to wait about two-thirds of the way into the song for the full band to kick in. And then when it does, it's kind of yachty. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, well, for my buried treasure, I'm going to keep it simple. Okay. Stupid. Uh, mm. I'm going right at it. I'm going at the title track, the doc rock, uh, the rock doc, and this is Dan Hill's "Sometimes When We Touch." At times I understand you, and I know how hard you try. I've watched while love commands you, and I've watched love pass you by. At times I think we're drifters. 
Now, let me tell you why I went there. One, because when I began my journey into what then I thought was Yacht Rock, which was really just soft rock, I went specifically looking for this song out of my past. I'm like, I got to, this one has to be in my mix. I don't care if it's Yacht Rock. I don't care. And it was somewhat like, you never hear it on the Yacht Rock station. You don't hear it on any of the compilations. I'm like, how did people not remember the song? Well, you could say it's because it's just a ballad, but you right. know there's other ballads that they're playing. So anyways, um, good on uh, the folks at Gunpowder and Sky for t- digging out Dan Hill, that classic. And I just, I don't care how soft it is. I love that tune. I always thought that was one of the most well-written songs of that entire era. And I, n- I never got the negative side of that song. So I never felt that. Me neither. That's a perfect song. When I was trying to explain to Chuck, I probably did a poor job of it where you don't hear songwriters going after that perfect melody as much anymore. I think sometimes it's deliberate because they don't want to come across as small to me. I also think it's incredibly hard to find a perfect melody like that, but that song is just so well written. Mm, mm, yeah. Mm. It's more hard than it is the other, probably, you know, just, yeah. I think it's the difficulty of it. If, I, if everyone could do it, they would, I tell you, probably, they would, they yeah, wouldn't probably. find other reasons. And you know, as much time as they spent on it, I'm sorry, old man yelling at cloud. They couldn't convince me that uh, taking software, rock sampling it and turning it into a rap song was any sort of artistic endeavor sorry (laughs) yeah yeah but yet pushing buttons can be (laughs) right (laughs) that's a whole other episode all right right. off the map i'm going off the map so dan hill is one of those guys like the aforementioned eric carmen who i just i remember loving the soft rock ballads back in the day like uh what was eric carmen's all by myself Mm -hmm. so good well That's not my off the map, but I'm going to fast forward to 1987, and I know we've talked about this song before because it's written by a certified yacht rocker, Frankie Previtt, and another guest we had on, John DiNicola, and here is from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, Hungry Eyes. I never tire of that song. It, it no. does. It immediately brings to mind that movie, which to me is so schmaltzy, but I never get tired of that song. No, I have the, a fortunate, I think, um, little nugget for my history that my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, put that on a mixtape for me. Mm-hmm. So it conjures those memories oh. and not Patrick Swayze holding up uh, a little dancer. You so, lucky anyway. devil, you. <laughs> All right. Well, off the map for me, I found it very exciting that... A, Robert Schwartzman from Rooney was in there, and that Chuck told us how great of an interview he was, how knowledgeable he was, and since this is a standalone sort of special episode, I never thought I'd get the opportunity to tell everybody how great I think the music of Rooney is, so even though we heard the hit earlier, uh, When Did Your Heart Go Missing, I'm going to drop in another one. This is from the Eureka album, their third album from 2010, Rooney doing All or Nothing. Yeah, I thought you and I were the only two people in the world who knew who Rooney was and loved him as much as we do. And knew, yeah, the guy's name. But you can hear, you like particularly in that song, the guitar lines and stuff, it sounds very much like you, if you drop that into the rock world of 1978, it would not be out of place. Very true. Very true. Yep. 
All right. Well, there's your very special episode. We should remind people that we are in the middle of a short hiatus. We are planning to come back in early February with regularly scheduled episodes. Um, yep. But we came out of this uh, quick respite for this little episode. So now we are going to officially say for season three. Ahoy, Poloy. Ahoy, Poloy.